Let's return to our journey through Luke. Let's please stand and read Luke 16, 1 through 8. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Please be seated. Now, in case you're wondering, man, what is Jim going to do with this one? <laughs> I am too. And... And, and I just want to give a little disclaimer that most scholars and biblical commentators will tell you that this is the most difficult parable of all the parables that Jesus taught. And I probably would have to tell you that I've been dreading this Sunday for months because for many years, I did not know what to make of this parable. And I was feeling pretty sure that this would be the Sunday when I would have the shortest sermon ever. Don't say amen to that. But... <laughs> The, uh, the sermon would be essentially, I don't have a clue, let's pray. And, and it, so you can pray anyways. And I think I have a bit of a clue, and I thank God for that. I really got desperate before the Holy Spirit this week and pre pre preparing for this message. And I, I want to point to Dr. Ken Bailey's book, Poet and Peasant. Ken Bailey is one of the best New Testament scholars out there. And, and I believe with his help and the work of the Holy Spirit, we might discover an amazing and powerful truth in this text that's more practical, urgent, and eternal than you might guess. Let's get started. The first two verses begin this way. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So note that the rich man is pictured here as an owner who has entrusted the management of his affairs to a steward. That, okay, so this is very common in the ancient world. You'd have kind of a wealthy landowner. He would have tenants who rented part of the land for their farming, and he would have a steward or a manager who would serve as his agent, would represent the interest of the owner and that of the tenants, and would kind of be the go-between. And everyone who hears this arrangement in the ancient world is very familiar with that. And really, it's not all that uncommon even within our culture if you're talking about rental properties and so on, right? So now somebody accuses this manager of wasting or mishandling the master's positions. We don't know who this person is, but he must be a pretty trustworthy source because when the owner hears of this, and the NIV here really is not, uh, it doesn't give you the nuance correctly. It's really, what have I been hearing about you? It's not that this manager has screwed up once. He, he's a chronic screw-up. 
And the owner has been hearing about this for some time, and now is the time of confrontation. And he demands that, that the manager provide, you know, the, the evidence of his accounting or, he, you know, to be accountable for what he's done. And then the owner fires him on the spot. From this moment on, he will no longer have the privilege of stewarding the master's estate. Now, we're going to make some assumptions right away as we go through this text. There are many people who disagree or have different views of how to interpret this parable. But I think you'll see, I think this is accurate. First of all, we're going to assume that the rich man in this story is a landowner, and he is a noble landowner. And remember, this is coming right after Luke 15, where we had a a father, a patriarch, who was kind of a wealthy landowner. A lot of times in the New Testament, when it starts out, there was a rich man, it doesn't go well, okay? Rich men are not always lifted up in the highest light. But in this case, this rich man is a wealthy landowner, and he's a noble one. Uh, He has high expectations regarding the way that his stewards will handle his affairs. The owner cares about integrity. And I want you to see that the owner is just, he, he will make a judgment, and he's just in his judgments. He demands accountability, and then he fires the faithful steward because that is the just thing to do, okay? I mean, the manager was unfaithful. He was wasting the owner's possessions. He's held accountable, and he's fired. But I also want you to see that the owner is merciful by nature. Why do I say that? Because... An owner who was maybe just but ruthless would have immediately had the unfaithful manager arrested. The ancient law there required that the unfaithful manager repay every dime that he owed the master. Thus, the manager likely couldn't produce that. He would end up in debtor's prison. His family would be sold into slavery. That was the path of a ruthless but just owner. But that's not what happens. This manager receives mercy, even though it's justice, it's mercy, because the owner fires him, but he does not have him arrested. He does not demand repayment. He doesn't have him beaten and thrown into prison. That's very important. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's see what happens next. So the manager says to himself, oh, reading the text, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, note a few things, and we'll get to the heart of this. Note that the manager... When accused and fired, does not try to defend himself. He doesn't try to shift blame. He doesn't try to deny the charges or lie and say that he didn't do anything wrong. His silence indicates that he accepts the judgment and that he acknowledges, I deserve that. I have been unfaithful. I deserve to be fired. Now, that's huge because the ancient Mediterranean world, actually the current Mediterranean world is very much the same. It's a very conflictual honor-based society. And so for a man, even if he's guilty, to be charged as you're guilty, that you've mismanaged funds, you would expect there to be a confrontation, that he would lie, that he would shift blame, that he would, that he would do everything he could to keep his job, and 
maintain his honor. This guilty manager does not. By his silence, he basically acknowledges his guilt. That is very significant. And it might be very significant to the mercy aspect too, right? Because if he lies, if he's confrontational and conflictual and he tries to justify himself, maybe there is a rest. Maybe he does go to jail. We don't know that. But we do know it's very odd and it's very unique that this man does not try to justify himself. And I think there's a lesson there for all of us. Now, because he's been fired in a merciful way, he has this window of time. He has this window of time to act before he's labeled as a scoundrel in the eyes of the whole community. Before everyone finds out that he's been fired, he has this moment, this time, this window to take action. Now, he's too weak for manual labor, and he won't stoop to begging. You know he needs another job. He's thinking about the fact that this master has been merciful to him. It could have gone so much worse. He could have ended up in jail, arrested, beaten, so on. So what's going to happen is that the mercy of the owner that is now evident to the manager will determine his course of action. Why? Because what we're going to see is that the manager here is going to take an extraordinary risk betting his whole life and future and the welfare of his family on the gracious nature of the owner. Let me show you. In the ancient world, there existed a formal contract between owner and tenant. It literally would, would have to be a, a written kind of agreement. It would be signed. Both parties would agree upon it. This is no surprise. And uh, e even though this agreement existed between the owner and the tenant, the manager would usually create and negotiate the, the agreement. And he would basically represent primarily the interest of the owner, but also the interest of the tenants. So that's how that arrangement would work. And the tenants would pay rental fee out of the produce of the harvest. That's why the fee is 800 gallons of olive oil or 1,000 bushels of wheat. And, and that's a lot. So these are very successful, large tenants. And, and that's the picture that we're looking at. So here's what the manager figures out. This is his genius. He says, I've been fired and I deserve that, but my master is merciful. So he calls in the tenants and he renegotiates their contracts, their rental fee. And he literally carves it down at the value of 500 denarii per contract. Now, a denarius was one day's wage. So just do the math. That's what, 18 months worth of wages or so that is being saved for each of these tenants. Now, this meeting would not have been terribly unusual for a renegotiative contract if there was a drought or a flood or something where the crops were just not gonna come in. You know, a decent owner would call them and say, we're gonna, we're gonna lower your payment because of the conditions. But this meeting was not about a drought. It's not the harvest time. Payment's not due. And, and these tenants, you see, they don't know that the manager has been fired. So how are the tenants going to interpret what's happening in this meeting? They only have one way to interpret these facts, that the owner is being generous, that he's being gracious and merciful to them, that he's lowering the cost of the rental fee. And the manager was brilliant in negotiating this 
with the owner on their behalf. And so as soon as these tenants leave this meeting, they're going to go throw a huge party in the village. And they're going to be talking about how wonderful and awesome and generous is the owner. And they're going to be singing the praises of this manager, who they're pretty sure was the one who just negotiated the new deal. Now, if we hit the pause button and we hadn't already read the end of the story, we're sitting there wondering, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when the owner finds out that the manager who he just fired called a meeting without his permission and renegotiated the contracts of the tenants, taking a huge amount of income away from him? How's he going to handle that situation? Well, how do you handle that situation? If he sends a messenger back to the tenants and says, hey, disregard everything that you just signed, disregard that completely, that, I didn't do that. I'm, I'm not that merciful and gracious and generous. No, 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 don't. This rascal is a scoundrel. I just fired him. I'm, in fact, now I'm going to put him in prison. I'm going to arrest him and his family's going to be sold into slavery, right? I mean, that's an option, but how is the village going to understand the owner? They're going to think of him as... As, as prudish and maybe a little bit mean-spirited and unforgiving. And, and even though he would be just, he would lose the perception and that understanding that he's also merciful, right? But if the owner decides to let this fly, his reputation will be awesome. There will be praise and glory sung about how great and generous he is the reputation of the sinful manager will be redeemed and he'll be able to be productive and useful in society and get another job, but at tremendous personal cost. The only way justice can happen in this situation is if the owner absorbs all the loss. Now be thinking about the gospel. Can you see what this is pointing to? Can you see that the desperate manager here has taken a bold initiative Banking everything, his livelihood and that of his family, on the generous, merciful nature of this owner. The parable concludes with verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. You're like, what does that mean? (laughs) I don't have a clue. I'm just kidding. See, the shocking conclusion of this story is that the master does not have this unfaithful manager arrested. He cares about this man. He understands he's a sinner. Justice has to happen. But because he's merciful, and it's so important for everyone to understand that he is both just and merciful, that he does not send messengers out to cancel the contracts. Instead, the, pa- the master personally absorbs the loss, with, which brings great joy to the tenants, redeems the unfaithful manager in the eyes of the villagers. But it costs him a lot. And then, at the end of the story, the manager actually commends. I'm sorry, the owner commends the manager for his shrewdness or his wisdom in regards to the path that he took to save himself. So what's the moral of the story? Ken Bailey sums it up this way. God, 
the master, is a God of judgment and mercy. Because of his evil, man, the steward, is caught in the crisis of the coming of the kingdom, which is always judgment and accountability. Excuses will avail the steward nothing. Man's only option is to entrust everything to the unfailing mercy of his generous master, who he can be confident will accept to pay the price for man's salvation. This clever rascal was wise enough to place his total trust in the quality of mercy experienced at the beginning of the story. That trust was vindicated. Disciples of Jesus need that kind of wisdom. So why is this steward praised by the master? Bailey states, he is praised for his wisdom in knowing where his salvation lay, not for his dishonesty. Now, here are some takeaways for you this morning as we close. Number one, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus Christ enters the scene, the kingdom has come. And that means that we are now exposed by the light of the king. And the message is very clear. We will all be accountable. Everything we have, everything we are, every moment that we have was given to us by the master. It all belongs to him. We're accountable for the way that we've used it. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to give you a little bit of an assignment. I want you to put three little columns down there. And over those columns, write time, influence, and possessions. And I wanted you to take a few minutes later today, maybe even now as you're thinking about this, and I want you to think about over the past seven days, how have you leveraged your time? How have you extended your influence? How have you invested your wealth? That doesn't actually belong to you, any of it. It belongs to the king. And if you knew that you were going to stand before the king of all creation and he was going to ask you the same question, what is this that I've heard about you? Give an account. And you knew that there was an accuser. And of course, the scriptures tell us that we have an accuser. That Satan stands before the throne of God day and night and accuses us without ceasing. This is what he does. He legitimately points out all of our sins and demands justice, which is condemnation of our souls. What's going to happen? How, how's that going to turn out for you? You know, what, what, what this does is it literally makes us feel very uncomfortable. And if you're squirming here today, you're in good company. I'm squirming too. Because if we are all weighed and found wanting, and you have a just God, then there's punishment. That's what the scriptures tell us. Of course, they also tell us that our owner is merciful. So what do you do when you discover that your management has been unfaithful? Well, there's only one thing you can do, and that is to repent with a contrite and broken heart. Ask God to forgive our mismanagement in the name of Jesus Christ, then we ask for the Holy Spirit to direct our stewardship of time, our stewardship of our influence, our stewardship of the wealth that has been entrusted to us so that we will serve the owner's agenda and bring glory to God and not to ourselves. 
My second point that I want you to take away today is this. A time is coming and will soon come when we will no longer be managers. The day will come when God will look at you and say, you may no longer be a manager. I could have a stroke tonight and I would no longer be a manager of the gospel proclamation that he has entrusted to me that I currently steward even now in your presence. It would be over. I would have the rest of my days to think about, was I faithful with my time? Was I faithful with the gospel message? Did I pound him hard enough? Did I say it clear enough? Did I have passion and urgency about the gospel that saves souls? Did I play it safe? We learned in 2008, 2009, 2010, didn't we? That the market can turn like that. And those of us who were sitting on great amounts of kingdom wealth that doesn't even belong to us, it belongs to him, it's suddenly gone. And your opportunity to be a steward of the king's extravagant riches is over. And you have the rest of your days to wonder, was I faithful? Did I leverage everything that God entrusted to me for his glory? Or did I squander it away? Any one of us could die as we leave this parking lot here today, and we're done. And we will stand before the king, and we will be held accountable. This isn't just one story. This is the whole gospel. Do not think for a minute that what you do in this life doesn't matter. It matters a great deal. And we will all be accountable. The day will come when we're no longer a steward. We're no longer a manager. That great honor and privilege will no longer be ours. And once you see yourself in this parable and you understand it's not talking about that person, it's not talking about, it's talking about me. This is our story. And you discover that you are an unfaithful manager and you deserve punishment for your mismanagement. Then the question that comes of this text is, where is your hope? What hope do you have for salvation? You've been justly accused. You've been justly fired. Is it eternal condemnation? Will you be labeled forever and ever a scoundrel and a rascal and deserve what you get? Where is your hope? You know, many of us are so proud that if we find ourselves in the story and somebody accuses us and the master says, turn in your account, you may no longer be a manager, we're going to say, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I, I've been good. I, I've been really, well, I've been, I mean, nobody's perfect, but, but I've been good compared to my neighbor. You're not going to be judged compared to a neighbor. Hebrews 4 says we will be judged naked and alone. You have nothing to say. Just like this manager, the owner is just. He is right in his judgments. We deserve to be fired. See, our hope is not that we've been great managers. Our hope is not that we're going to be better managers after we're fired. That's ridiculous. Our hope is in the mercy of the master. You see, this is a parable. And the parable says, here's an example of real life, and it points to something so much greater. It's, it's what Kim Bailey calls the rabbinic principle of light to heavy, or how much more. You know, Jesus says, if, if a son asks a father for a loaf of bread, will he give him a snake? No. How much more will your heavenly father give you everything that you need, right? This is another how much more story. 
I mean, if this scoundrel, this dishonored steward negotiated his problem, banking everything on the mercy of the owner, how much more should you place all of your trust in the mercy of the king? Well, how do we know that our king is merciful? I mean, we all suspect God is just. How do we know he's merciful? Is it not Jesus Christ crucified, the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world, that justice might be accomplished and mercy maintained? We are all accountable. We're all guilty of mismanagement. But where is your hope? Where is your hope? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So, Lord, we have nothing to say in light of your judgment. It is true. We have been unfaithful managers. We have squandered your possessions. We have taken for granted each second and minute of time that you've given us. We have influence that we could leverage for your kingdom, that we could point to your glory and to your mercy. Instead, we sit around and watch TV and play video games, and we squander it. And you've given us so much wealth. One of the wealthiest counties in all of the world. And we hoard it and squander it. And we are sorry. Lord, we repent. And our hope is not that we're right or that we've been good enough or gooder than our neighbors. Our hope is in the mercy of the king who loves us so much that he sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to absorb the terrible cost of our unfaithfulness, that we might be redeemed, not just in eternity, but even now that our, our name might not be mud, that we don't have to wear the scarlet letter, that we're not the scoundrel, that we are those who have been set free by the mercy of the king, who absorb the cost that we might walk with our heads heads held high, and, and be full of gratitude and graciousness and mercy to a world who generally feels condemned. Lord, leverage every second that we have of this life. Don't let us waste it. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might leverage the influence, that we might tell the great story. And Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would invest in what pleases you in your agenda here and around the world that maybe, just maybe, when our time for being a steward is over, that, that you'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your kingdom. Oh, Lord, I don't know many of us who love you who don't want to hear those words, but we know we don't deserve it. So don't judge us by our righteousness. Judge us by the righteousness of the Lamb, the one slain for the sins of the world one who covers us with his love by the blood that shed, that we shed on that cross. Lord, we repent. Help us make most of the time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.